You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Psalm 45, beginning in verse 1. Psalmist says this. It says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the King. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. With the oil of gladness beyond your companions, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyree will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they're led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Uh, Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to uh, take a posture of desiring to listen to You, to hear from You, to be transformed by You. God, help give us that posture. Lord, help us to be confronted where we need to be confronted and encouraged and strengthened and and healed where we need those things. Father, most of all, help us to hear Your voice. Father, ask that You would help to Create within us an anticipation of the day when we will see your face. Trust that you'll do that and then some. In Jesus' name and everybody said, Amen. Psalm 45. If you've been tracking the last few Psalms, the last few Psalms have been dark and heavy almost disturbing at times, and yet encouraging as they have turned our hearts to look to a sovereign God, right? 
And you get to Psalm 45 and the whole tone shifts. It's like we just started watching a different movie now. No longer watching a hard, heavy movie. We're watching something that lifts the heart. The reality is that Psalm 45 is a love song, right? Uh, in, In my Bible, there is a superscription that I did not read when reading the text, but just under the title of the psalm in my Bible, it says this. It says, To the choir master... According to lilies. So these are directions on how this song is to be sung among the congregation. So it says, to the choir master, according to lilies, that must be the tune, whatever lilies is. I don't have that on my uh, Spotify. A maskal, he says, of the sons of Korah. And the final thing says, a love song. So it's a love song. I want you to think with me for a minute about Uh, what a good love song does for your heart. For those of you who have maybe found a spouse, love song might remind you of the love that the two of you share between each other. A good love song can, can also create a sense of despair or loneliness if you've experienced an absence of love or if you've experienced a, like a love gone wrong. Love songs can do that. But a love song can also um, cause you to dream of what it might be like to experience the kind of love that you've always dreamed about, the kind of love that never ends. Good love song can do that because music, I think, and I'm sure you might agree, music has a profound effect on our emotions, doesn't it? It can make us feel all sorts of things from Anger to sadness to joy to anticipation. Now, not only is uh, this psalm a love psalm, but but it's also um, a psalm where the psalmist is is absolutely overjoyed to write it. Now, you see that in the first verse, right? You look at how the, uh, the psalmist describes what he's feeling. You get the emotional sense of what's going on for him, he says in verse one that his heart is literally overflowing with the pleasing theme. He feels a sense of overwhelming pleasure because of this song. He also says that his tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe, right? What he's saying here is that he's really excited to write this song. Why? Because his heart is full of an image. And the image that that his heart is full of is this image of a majestic groom and a beautiful bride on their wedding day. But you think about all the beauty, all the anticipation, all the joy of a a wedding day. You think about the the butterflies in, in your stomach when the groom takes his place up front and he's waiting in anticipation for his bride to walk down the aisle. You think about that sense of awe when when the back doors open, so to speak, and the bride comes stepping through that door, and everybody stands up, and your heart kind of pauses for a moment in awe because of her beauty. The wedding day is a day it is full of anticipation. It's full of beauty. It's full of excitement. It's full of 
joy. To most uh, scholars believe that Psalm 45 was written to help Israel remember the day when King Solomon married his bride. You know the story of King Solomon. We're not going to get much into this. You know the story of King Solomon. Dude had a lot of wives. Um, and ultimately, his, uh, his infatuation with having so many wives um, derailed a lot of things in his life as well as the life of Israel because he married wives that worshipped foreign gods, which then began to turn his heart in that direction as well. But the first woman he married, the, the woman who remained his queen um, throughout those years, that's what this psalm is about. That day, when King Solomon married bride. And as our psalmist is, is, is getting ready to write, he's saying, hey, I, I have been anticipating this day for so long. And I am excited as I think about what I'm going to say about the king and about his bride as they walk down the aisle to be united together in marriage. You can almost think of this like maybe the best man um, giving his toast after the wedding ceremony. Be similar to that, at least the ones that are done well. Now, while it might be true that Solomon's wedding day is the setting that sets the tone for this psalm, uh, as you study and as you look at it, you, you'd find that it becomes increasingly obvious that this psalm is about so much more than the royal wedding of a human king and queen. Okay? If you put yourself for a minute, you cross the bridge from our culture to the culture of Israel during this time, you cross that bridge and you land there, you would find that Israel would definitely read or sing this psalm often in the years after that wedding. And they would be reminded, as they read or sung this psalm, they'd be reminded of King Solomon's wedding day. right? But I think that as they read or sung this psalm, they would also read or sing it in anticipation of a future wedding in heaven between God and His bride. And I think that's the way we should study this psalm. We should study it in anticipation and excitement for the day when we are fully united to Jesus in heaven. Our journey on this earth is over. We've passed through it. All the pain, the hardship, the sin, all of that suffering behind us. We are now fully united to Jesus, face to face with Him forever. I think that's the way we are to read this psalm. I think it is meant to create a sense of anticipation and joy and excitement for what lies ahead for us as believers. Now just to look at the text with me for a minute, if you look at verses 6-7, through seven, I think that's where you'll see that this is about so much more than just King Solomon and his queen. When you look at the language of verses 6-7, through seven, it becomes increasingly clear that Solomon's wedding is meant to help us look forward to the return of Jesus. Jesus is our groom. He's the one whose throne is eternal. Verses 
He's the one who's been anointed by God in verses 6 and 7. And he's the one who's going to come back someday to be eternally united to his bride for all, all of eternity. So I think it's verses 6 and 7 that really captures this sense that, hey, this isn't just about Solomon and his bride. This is also looking forward to that. It's as though, it's as though Solomon and his bride were there to give us an image of what is to come, but in, in such a better way. Think about this. What do you think that day will be like for you? That day when you're standing face to face with Jesus. I think there's a song um, that, I, that I'm sure we've all heard. And there's a movie song that I can only imagine, right? Like, what will that day be like? I can only imagine because I've never been there. What do you think it'll be like to be the bride of Jesus? No, for us men, that's hard to imagine, comprehend. What do you think that would be like to have the, in that sense for us, let's speak to the men for a moment, to just have the, the deepest bond that you could possibly have with Jesus? The deepest sense of brotherhood you could possibly think of? I think... I think it'll be like what the psalmist says when he says that his heart is overflowing. I think that's what's going to happen to all of us. Our hearts will be so full in that moment that I think it'll be hard to describe. It's hard to imagine. I think that our hearts will be overflowing with words about the king and I think the queen too because there's imagery for the queen here. There's also imagery here for the offspring of the king and the queen. And I think in those moments when you and I see Jesus for the very first time, I think that's what's going to happen. Our hearts will be just like the psalmist, instantaneously, totally filled to overflowing with an eternity of praise. But to tie these images together, um, take a look at verses 2-9. through In these verses, our psalmist describes the king on his wedding day. And he describes him as the most handsome of men, right? Whose words are full of grace, according to verses 2 and 3. He's a mighty warrior. Got a sword on his side. He he rides into victory all over the earth. That's That's a pretty great image when you think about it. I don't think Mel Gibson comes anywhere close to this image. He's totally committed to truth. Totally committed to humility. Totally committed to righteousness. And the activity of his life is nothing short of awesome, according to verse 4. Who can you think of that even comes close to fulfilling that image? Completely committed to truth. Completely committed to humility and righteousness. and Everything about his life just leaves you in awe. You look at verses 5 and 7, you see that that this this king, this this man, he opposes and crushes his enemies. He does it with arrows that never miss the mark of the center of the heart. His throne can never be overthrown. You never have to worry. Is the other party going to get in here and take over and ruin everything? You never have to worry about that. He loves everything that's pure, and he hates everything that is dirty. This is the kind of man the psalmist is describing. 
He pushes it further in verses 7 and 8, and he says, hey, this, this man's been chosen. He's been anointed by God. His clothing is full of the fragrance of the purest cologne that money can buy. I remember walking to a gas station once and then walking in here, and one of the ladies was like, I know you were in that gas station earlier. I could smell the cologne you wear. Does that mean I need to quit wearing that? The sense here is that with Jesus, with this king, you'll know him based upon the way he smells. It smells pure. The smell is, is, is expensive. I like this one too. In verses 8 through 9, he describes him as a man who enjoys good music. That's, that's the way I take it. It's the way I read it. He enjoys good music on stringed instruments, right? Coming down from the palaces. I don't know. Maybe he loves good rock and roll. Maybe he loves good blues music. I don't know. He also describes what the women are like around this man. The women around him are women of honor, right? They're not sleazy gold diggers. They're women of honor. Not to mention, he ends all of this description with a picture of the queen who is right next to that king. The queen herself is covered in the finest gold on the face of the planet. Which I think points to the way that that king cares for his queen. So the king on his wedding day, if you were going to summarize all this, the king on his wedding day looks like the perfect man. Girls, I don't know what the perfect man looks like to you. And guys, for us, when we think about a man that we want to live our lives after, be like, I don't know what image you put in your head, but I would say this is a dang good image, really. We could, I think we could um, think and meditate on the different parts of this image for a long time. The king on his wedding day looks like the perfect man, right? He's pleasing to the eye. He's committed to godliness. He, he, he opposes evil. Seems like he knows how to dress himself. Loves good music. Women in his company are honorable ladies. His queen is radiant in all her beauty. In a word, the king on his wedding day is absolutely awe-inspiring. I think when you see him, if you, if you actually walk up to him, I think you're left speechless. I think you're left in awe of His majesty. I think that to be in the presence of this King is to be in the presence of absolute perfection. Nothing is broken in this man. He, he, he doesn't have that look about him that makes you wonder if he's there for his own pleasure or not. Uh, you can tell by the women in his company that he actually loves and cares and protects those who are vulnerable. Never question his loyalty. Never fear what an enemy might do to you. Because this king is the perfect vision of a man. This man will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never use you. Never exploit you. Never demean you. Never condemn you. Never abuse you. Never neglect you. Never be ashamed of you. This man will love you and care for you, protect you, and nurture you. This king is the perfect vision of a real man. And the same is true of his soon-to-be queen. I think she's the real deal too. 
You look at how the psalmist describes the queen on her wedding day, verses 10 through 15. First thing in verses 10 through 11 that our psalmist does is he actually gives her some instruction. Very instructive the way he speaks directly to the queen. He instructs her to be thoughtful. He instructs her to listen. He instructs her to leave her father's house. And he also instructs her to submit to her king. And then he gives her a promise that if she does these things, if she's thoughtful, if she listens, if she leaves her father's house, she submits to her king, then the king is going to fall in love with all of her beauty. So it's interesting when you think about it, the way that the psalmist is describing beauty is not the way that we might describe beauty. He's describing beauty in terms of characteristics of someone. He says, the queen is going to be beautiful if she's thoughtful, if she listens, if she resists her old life, and if she submits to her king. Now think about this. If at the end of the day, the image of the king that we have here is the picture of Jesus, our coming groom, and if at the end of the day, this picture of the queen is actually a picture of the bride of Christ, the church, us, And how good would it be if we as believers practiced the things that the psalmist is telling the queen to do? What if we practice these things? Thinking about Jesus. Listening to Jesus. Resisting our old lives of sin. And submitting to Jesus as the king of our lives. I say this often and you've probably heard it. In American culture, it's really easy to submit to Jesus as your Savior without ever submitting to Him as your King. And I would add that if you never submit to Him as your King, you probably have not submitted to Savior. We love the imagery of rescue, and it's true, part of the Gospel. We resist the imagery of submission. Because we are our own people, we're individuals. I made that decision. And yet it's very clear throughout scriptures that Jesus is our Savior because He's our King who gave Himself as our Savior. So when submitting to Jesus as Savior, we must submit to Him as King, King of our lives. Therefore, if we submit to Him as King of our lives, then we would spend time thinking about Him. We would spend time listening to Him. We would spend time resisting our old lives of sin rather than justifying it and excusing it. We would submit to Jesus in that way. I would say the bride of Christ is never more beautiful than when she practices wholehearted devotion to her King. Now our psalmist moves on from that point and he moves on in verses 12 through 13. He begins to describe the queen a bit more. He points out that the queen in all her beauty is going to attract the attention of the wealthiest people on the planet. Why? Because she's committed to purity in the privacy of her own home. Her purity literally attracts wealthy people from around the world. I don't know if this queen is known for taking her purity and making it a standard for others. 
All I know is that the purity of her life is so attractive to the world that it catches their attention. She's clothed in robes of pure gold. Sparkling colors, it says in verses 13 and 14. She's in the company of her friends. And all of her friends know what it means to strive for, to to pursue holiness, purity, faithfulness. These are words that we don't use often in our culture. The joy, the joy and the gladness that surrounds the queen and her company. This is the the direct result of year upon year upon year of what? I think it's year upon year upon year of looking forward to her wedding day. All of that time she's been preparing herself for that day, right? She's labored hard year after year after year in anticipation of that wedding day so that she might present herself to her husband as a pure gift of love and devotion and faithfulness. At the end of the day, the queen in this passage, on her wedding day, she is the perfect vision of beauty. Agree? Now, the third thing you see in the text, if you look at verses 16 through 17, is the offspring of this queen and this king. Can you imagine what kind of offspring this couple would produce? I mean, when we think about royal weddings, and every commentator that you read on this will mention it, but you think about royal weddings, right? Who do you think of? Somebody shout a name out real quick. Queen Elizabeth. All right. Do you have any other royal weddings that have happened in our lifetime that... Kate, whatever his name is. Right, yeah, I'm with you. I think you're right. What is his name? Anybody know? Prince William? <clears throat> if you, I mean, you can look up some of the stats on how many people watched that stuff being aired. I didn't watch it. I'm, I'm maybe different. I don't know. Probably out in the garage doing something out there. But uh, weddings like that get, get our attention. And people talk about, man, I wonder what their kids are going to be like. Probably going to be hellions. (laughs) Our psalmist says that the offspring of the king and the queen will be like royal princes. So like Prince William, I guess. That they're going to bring honor and glory to the name of the king for generations is what the psalmist says. They're going to bring attention to the king for for generations. They're going to cause the king to be praised for all of eternity. Now, if you read Charles Spurgeon's beautiful commentary on the Psalms, which if you don't have a copy, I highly recommend you get it and read it. It's beautiful. Treasury of David is what it's called. It's what he calls it. And Charles Spurgeon, speaking about this whole point, he recognized and he said that, that when the church, the bride of Christ, became fully committed to Jesus as her husband, as her king, He says, then and only then will the power of the gospel spread throughout the earth as though princes are traveling like ambassadors for the one true kingdom of the cross. 
Doesn't that change even just the thought of what it looks like for us to travel from point A to point B? Like I'm headed to South Dakota next week for some vacation. All I'm thinking about is grilling food and riding motorcycles in the Black Hills and seeing my family. But, but what if I saw it like, actually, I'm like an ambassador for Jesus. Like I'm part of the offspring of this wedding between Jesus and his bride, the church. And I'm just not just going out for vacation. I'm actually going out to spread the name of Jesus. What if we all saw our traveling from point A to point B just like that? To the offspring of the king and the queen, I think, are meant to point us to that image. Disciples that are being reproduced in the earthly ministry of the church. Our sole purpose is bound up in praising and worshiping and extending the kingdom of the king. And as Patrick pointed to earlier, this is not just a Sunday thing. What happens the moment we leave here? Between that moment and the moment we come back next Sunday? Do we live for the worship and the praise of our Savior and King? In anticipation of the fact that He's coming back and there's going to be a day when we are eternally united to Him. Do we live with that kind of anticipation? Preparing ourselves and readying ourselves for that big day. I would submit that this is probably a problem for us, isn't it? Anybody else want to agree and raise your hand and say, I have an issue with this? I'm the only one that has that issue? Are you guys sure? Are you guys like, no, you're not going to bully me into raising my hand? Gosh, y'all are awesome. <laughs> I see that hand in the back. You're safe now. Hey, man, when I think about this picture, this picture that the psalmist points here, um, paints here of the king and the queen on the wedding day, when I think about the offspring that are being produced through this union of Jesus and His bride, the church, right? I'm, I'm, again, I'm left feeling on one side a sense of awe and a sense of anticipation. And it's awe-inspiring, I think, as a, as a really majestic wedding day can be here on this earth. I don't think anything can compare with what the future wedding of Jesus and His church will be like. And yet, at the same time, I recognize, like I said a minute ago, I think we all struggle. I think we all struggle with this day in and day out. Why? We have our own pursuits. We pursue things that seem glorious. We pursue things that seem beautiful to us. We, we pursue things that take our breath away. We, we pursue things that give us joy. And the question that I think I want to leave us with here at the end is this. What is it that causes me to lose focus on that day? What is it that causes me to lose focus to lose the anticipation, to lose the joy, the awe of that future union with Jesus. What competes with my vision of that day? When you think about this, we desire a lot of different things, right? We pursue a lot of different things. And I would submit that most of the things that we desire and pursue probably aren't all that bad. I'm not saying we don't pursue and desire bad things. We desire, we pursue relationships, wealth, power, prestige, comfort, security, whole list of noble pursuits that I think can make the anticipation of that day in the future seem small by comparison. 
I think those are the kinds of things, the things that we see right in front of us that happen to distract us of the future day that's coming. Nothing wrong with those pursuits. Read. <coughs> Nothing wrong with those pursuits unless those pursuits cause us to sing songs about them to the neglect of our praise and worship of a crucified, risen, and returning king. There's nothing and there's no one that is more desirable than our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. But I think oftentimes we begin to put different glasses on or we get blurry vision. We begin to look at other things as though they are better. I think that when we find ourselves bogged down um, in the anticipation of earthly things, new job, big raise, or the despair of lacking earthly things, which I had a new job and got a raise, right? To use that as an illustration. I think we get bogged down in either anticipating what's to come, or we get bogged down by despairing the things that we lack. I think in those moments, what we need is we need to catch a fresh vision. We need to catch a fresh vision for the king and the queen on their wedding day and the offspring they're called to reproduce. I think you and I would do well to take note, again, that Jesus is the best king we could ever hope for. King Solomon, in all his glory on that day, still wound up being a very bad king. Jesus is the best king we could ever hope for because he gave his life as a ransom for us. He paid the price for you and for me, even though we were still stuck in our sin. Why? so that we could become His perfect and beautiful bride. That's why He did that. All that I think we have to do, really, is to surrender our lives to Him. And you do this time and time and time again. And you do this in very practical, very simple ways. You do this by thinking upon Him. You do this by listening to Him. You do this by resisting your old life. You do this by devoting yourself to making disciples who then act like princes throughout the earth to the glory and the praise of God. And the Bible has to be central to that. To think upon Christ. To listen to Christ. To resist the old life. To <clears throat> anticipate and look forward to the day when He would come and see you face to face, to do those things, to continuously submit and surrender to Him as both Savior and King, the Bible must be central to your life. Because it is through it that He speaks to you and that you hear from Him. So what is it? My question. In your life, what is it or what has it been that has caused you not to anticipate the coming of our King? I think if you walk out of here without knowing that, I think I've maybe done you a disservice. I can't ask you to look forward to and anticipate the beauty of the coming of Jesus if I don't also ask you, what is the wall that stands in between Him and you? What is it that causes your mind to be clouded with despair or anticipation of earthly things rather than living in this fully 
overjoyed, excited sense where you say, I am anticipating that day when I see Jesus face to face. What is that one thing? And I think all we have to do is as the Holy Spirit shows that to you, is you confess that as sin, you ask God to strengthen you, to think about Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to submit to Jesus, and to tell others about Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today. God, I pray um, that in our closing moments, You would help us. Help us, Father, to um, be energized by this vision, this picture of the bride and the King. And more importantly, Father, the coming of the King, whom we would see face to face one day. And help us, Father, by the power of Your Spirit to wrestle with whatever it is that might stand in between us and You between us having a full, excited anticipation of being in Your presence. Father, help us to identify that one thing. And by the power of Your Spirit, Father, help us to repent, confess, and to be filled with joy knowing that the lover of our souls, the King of this world, Jesus, gave His life as a ransom for sinners so that we might become saints. God, we love You in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.